I turn your attention this morning to the book of James chapter 2, and we want to read one verse, and you're hearing James chapter 2 and verse 23. This is a verse that I believe is, um, we've at least referred to it many times if we've not uh, specifically quoted it. James chapter 2 and verse 23 says, And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. What an amazing thing to be called a friend of God. That we as humanity could be in that type of a relationship with the creator of the universe. Um, this is something that I'd like to sort of unpack this morning in the few minutes that I have with you. I want to talk to you about the anatomy of a friend of God. The anatomy of a friend of God. When we look at the book of Genesis, we see that Genesis is divided up into six major sections. It's really two halves, but it has six major sections to it. The first uh, section in the first half is the creation of the universe and human beings. And then we see that we go to sort of the, the second part of that, that first half, and it's uh, what it means to be human. And we see then the beginning of, of sin and death. And then um, the, the third section in that first half is from Adam uh, to the judgment of the world by the flood of waters, of course, that we, that we read and study about um, as, as it relates to Noah and his family in that time. In the second half, you also have three sections, and it's best probably described as looking at it, as you've, I'm sure, heard the term, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The second half has three major sections to it, and it's uh, Abraham and his sons, and it concludes with Abraham's death. And then the second part of that second half is Isaac and his sons, and it concludes with uh, Isaac's death. And then finally, Jacob and his sons. And then the book finishes with the death of Jacob and then Joseph. So the first half teaches us about the nature of God, about the status of the universe, about the status of human beings. And the major emphasis in that first half of the book of Genesis is that God speaks. God speaks. It begins with this great declaration of God speaking. The worlds are created by the speech of God. And it is organized by the spoken word of God. But the high point is reached with the creation of of human beings and we read this magnificent and staggering phrase that is I believe the the pinnacle of all of human existence and that is simply a phrase that is just five words and it could easily be just skipped over or looked over and we read about it in Genesis 1:28, and God blessed them and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. But those five words, and God said unto them. We see now that there is a, a corner that is turned because it is not just God speaking the worlds into existence. It's not just God speaking and and natural creation are materializing uh, in, in form. But we realize now that God says unto them that humans are uniquely dignified to be able to understand and to respond to the speech of God. This changes everything. We discover in the second section that man is, is social and intelligent. He works, he is curious, he interacts with his wife and family. But the high point of his existence is his relationship with God that is defined by God's Word. So the first part is the creation of the world by God's Word. The second section is the order of humanity and life by the spoken word of God. And the key question in this second section that really unveils and un unwraps for us this interaction between humanity and deity, the key question, and perhaps it's still the key question in our world today, is simply this, whether man is going to trust the word of God. Can mankind trust the Word of God? The third section in that first half of Genesis is, is about judgment. If you step back from it, you'll see that the first section is creation, the second section is relationship, and even the first hint of redemption, and the third is the judgment of God. And if you look at that, you'll see that in the first half of the book of Genesis, but you'll also see that those are three main pillars of Christianity today. The creation, the spoken word of God, the, the relationship that humanity can have with deity and redemption, and then, of course, the judgment of God. And we are reminded that as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. What is interesting about that is that the flood of water, of course, which was that judgment in that day, we... We know it as the great flood, but also we can look back historically and there is science that backs us up and allows us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the word of God is true, that indeed there was an interruption in the uniformity of the earth that history cannot deny. And it was done with a natural resource, water. All of the earth's uh, recordings of its age and of its progression and all of that, all of them clearly indicate that there was an interruption, that there was this cataclysmic event that took place. And of course, we know that it is the flood that we read about in the book of Genesis. What is interesting about that is we, if we look at that scripture as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the day of the coming of the Son of Man. And we, we sort of parallel that event with the event that we know that is coming upon this earth. The second coming will also culminate in an interruption of uniformity of life. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up 
to meet him in the air. That's also going to be a break <laughs> in the natural forces of day-to-day -day life. I'm so glad that we serve a God who interrupts our life. Oh, hallelujah. I'm glad that we serve a God that you can't always examine under a microscope and you can't predict every movement. You can just know that when God speaks, things happen. When God moves, humanity and all of creation has to acknowledge that our Creator has spoken. And of course we know that that second interruption will also conclude with another judgment, with another natural resource, fire. The Genesis tells us not only what was first in time, but also what is first in importance. It's such a fascinating book. It's the, it is the book of beginnings. But it is not limited to just a time frame in the past. Genesis is still a book that is showing us what is in front of us. In the second half, God starts again. And this is really why we divide it up into two halves, because after the judgment of Noah, basically we find that there is a second half, and there is a new beginning. When we say the judgment of Noah, we understand it was God judging the earth and Noah and his family were saved, but it was that, that event, it was that time frame that now God has to start again, and he does. In the second half, God starts again by calling Abraham. He calls Abraham out to begin a new nation. This is the great thing about God, and I, I feel compelled to just stay here for just one more moment. The great thing about God is that he constantly is creating new beginnings. You think something is a dead-end street, and perhaps without God, it is. But God, because he is the creator, he keeps recreating. Oh, hallelujah. You can say, Pastor, I've made a mess of things, and I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. And you can turn it over to God, and God creates a brand new chapter. You say, well, I, I've made a mess. I'll never be able to get back to where I was. And it'll, have to take, it'll take the next generation before the blessings of God can come again. Let me tell you something about my God. He can turn everything around in one service, in one moment in time. He can make everything brand new and make you a new creature in Christ Jesus. Oh, hallelujah. And so Genesis shows this. It lays down a pattern in the, in, the, in the legal realm. They would call it stare decisis. In other words, there is proof in the past of a particular way that a decision should be made or that will, it will be made in the natural course of events. So we have this nature of God that we see throughout the book of Genesis. He has to start again by establishing a people that will trust the Word of God. Remember, that is the seminal point is, can man trust the Word of God? In the first half, man failed to trust. So the only way for God to redeem humanity is to start back again with the trust factor. Now let me just say this since we're talking about new beginnings. It is important for each of us to understand 
that where we disconnected with God is the place that we have to go back to to reconnect with God. So many times we want to just move on and skate on and move on and put it under the rug and so forth. God will take us back to that point and say, what about that issue? Have you made it right? You know why? Because God is not interested in just glossing over and putting a Band-Aid on bitterness. He wants to get down to the root cause and say, I can heal you and deliver you at that very place, that sore, as it were. And so trust is where things broke down, and trust is where God begins again with his desire to redeem humanity. The great encouraging aspect about this for you and I is that man can find their way back to God by learning to trust God. The way that we make it back to our relationship with God. If you've had a relationship with God and you say, you know, I've just kind of grown cold and I've just, I'm not where I used to be and I don't, it doesn't seem like I have the joy and the pep in my step as it were, my walk with God. The good thing about it is you can almost always find your way back by using the compass of, I trust you, God. I don't know about these circumstances. I don't know about all these variables in my life that I can't control, but there is one thing I can control. I can make up in my mind that I trust you, God. I don't know when you're going to do it. I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know where you're going to do it, but I know that you are able to do it. Oh, hallelujah. That, that was what held the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they threw them in the fiery furnace and they said, is your God going to be able to deliver you from fire? They said, we don't know whether he will or not, but here's what we do know. He is able. He is able. I trust him. I know he's at us all power in heaven above and earth beneath. So we find our way back, and this is what's so encouraging for each of us, is that we can find our way back by simply learning to trust God. We as humans have this capacity. And I would, I would even venture to say today that we even have the propensity to learn to trust God. I, I would even venture to say, and this is probably another whole Bible study, but that it is a part of the DNA of humanity to want to trust God. The thing about God is when he created us, he not only gave us the capacity, but he gave us the desire to be in relationship with our creator. Everything else that you see around you, and you see where people, you know, get hooked on all these different addictions of the flesh, alcohol, drugs, and immorality, or whatever, all of these things are substitute for the humanity that you and I have that craves relationship with God. And the enemy can't redesign us, he can't rewire us, so he tries to give substitutes to humanity. But inside of every one of us, there is a desire and the ability to be in harmony, to be in relationship and to be a friend of God. And that's why we're most complete and we feel most fulfilled when we are at that place. The three great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if they were able to reestablish this trust after the colossal failure of humanity to trust the Word of God, then ladies and gentlemen, there is hope for each one of us. 
the biggest issue we face, the greatest pressure upon any Christian is to undermine our confidence in the Word of God. And ladies and gentlemen, here we are thousands of years later, and it is still the greatest pressure that each of us will face. Can you trust the Word of God? Joseph and Daniel are inspiring characters in the Bible who were leaders in pagan countries. But in the New Testament, Joseph is only mentioned six times and Daniel is only mentioned once. But Abraham is mentioned more than 60 times. The key issue with Abraham was whether he was going to trust the Word of God. And I remind you again, I've said it before, but I'll say it again, it's the, it's the centerpiece of this message this morning, and that is simply, and I would also say it's the center point of our faith. Can we trust the Word of God? Well, we know from the book of Joshua that Abraham started out as an idol worshiper. The Bible says that they served other gods. We don't know a whole lot about how Abraham started out, but we know that because you can read in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 2, and Joshua said unto all the people, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. Now, I think it's important for us to explore this for just a moment. Because we need to know what is the nature of idolatry because God had to break its grip in Abraham's life so that he could then lead him to a place of trusting in God. So what exactly is the nature of idolatry and is it relevant to us today? I would say yes it is. In fact, John the Apostle says in the New Testament, little children, keep yourself from idols. Now, we may think of idols different today than what they dealt with then, but generally, idols, by their very nature, are things that we trust rather than God. That's basically the nature of an idol. They may be things that we love, but in the ancient days, they even feared their idols. But the key to all of it is trust. Every day, we have to trust different aspects of life. We trust cars that we get in and drive. We, we trust doctors, technology, institutions. But that does not mean that we have to put our final trust in them. In the West, of course, which we live, more than anything, we have replaced our trust in God with our trust in the human mind. And that is as idolatrous as any trinket in the ancient world. And if you go back and you study the gods of Babylon and Mesopotamia and Egypt and the Near East, you will see that they worshipped the metaphysical forces that were products or descendants of the universe. They were material gods that were derived from the energy of the universe. But ladies and gentlemen, our God created the universe. The best that idol worship can find are gods that are products of the universe. They're gods descended from the heavens and the earth. Our God created the heavens and the earth. There's a big difference between the two. So God had to move Abraham from a place of trusting the idols of man to a place of trusting the creator of man. 
This started out in the Garden of Eden with this whole trust issue because what is the, what is the thing that Satan designed, uh, disguised or designing himself as a serpent coming in? What is the first thing? Hath God said. The very first thing that the temptation came upon humanity in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve was simply to create doubt in man's mind. Hath God said. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe with all of my heart that we have to decide whether we're going to trust our own abilities and our own thinking or God's word. Now sometimes in life you don't see where you have to make that distinction. Sometimes you can trust your own abilities, you can trust your own logic, you can trust your own nature, you can trust your own instincts and God's word because they are running parallel to each other. But there will come a time in your life when things do not make sense. And when they don't make sense, who are you going to trust? Your own feelings, your own inclinations, your own emotions, or are you going to trust the Word of God that will seem counterintuitive to what you are facing at the moment? That's when you know where your trust lies. Do you, gonna, do you trust God's Word or do you trust your own intellect? When they conflict, and they will, things are not going to make sense. I rise today to say we must trust the Word of God. And I'm sure this morning I'm standing in a room of many of you that have a great education. And I'm thankful for my education and the sacrifice that it takes to have a good education. But we have to be very careful because education can be the idolatry of the mind. We can't just, now this is really important. I'm just going to touch on this and then I'm going to move on. We can't just trust our own intellect and then use God when we get stuck. There, there is a difference between faith in God and humanism. Humanism is when I trust my mind and use God. Christianity is when I trust God and use my mind. There is a big difference between the two. Humanism is when I trust my mind and then when things don't work out right, then I say, God, help me out of this. Christianity is when I trust God and I use my mind to facilitate that trust in God. It's clearly seen in the contrast between what man was trying to do at that time and what God was trying to do when he was calling Abraham. Now there's a reason while well, the book of James says that Abraham was a friend of God. God was trying to move Abraham to a place of trusting in him. And there's this great contrast because man was trying to do, at that time, the very thing that was the antithesis of trusting God. In fact, man was so untrusting of God, they said, we're going to build a city and we're going to build a tower. And it's going to be so tall what they were trying to do was establish a civilization, as it were, that would never be vulnerable again to a flood, to the judgment of God. And they went about building this Tower of Babel that we read about in the book of Genesis. And so we have this man trying, with its own thinking, its own ingenuity, trying to build a city, something that they could trust. And yet we have God who is calling Abraham and saying, trust me, Abraham. When we look in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 4, it gives us some, some great uh, understanding to this. 
Let's just use this to contrast because I think this is very applicable to our lives today. Genesis chapter 11 and verse 4. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Now here's the key phrase. And let us make us a name. Lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down. (laughs) Now I just... Again, you know, it's so, it's so easy to skate past this stuff. Here's what I get out of that statement. No matter how high man accomplishes, I mean, we really think we're bad now because we've been able to harness some of this technology and create smartphones and cell phones and, and you know, personal computers and all of this stuff, so we really think we're something. Let me just say this. The very best that man can create, God still has to come down to check it out. You are never going to reach God with your own abilities. It's still going to take a merciful God that comes down to you and I and picks us up. Oh, hallelujah. The Lord came down to see. What are they up to? He came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. Now, I want you to contrast that and go with me now to Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. Now watch what is happening with God calling Abraham. Nimrod and the builders of this city, humanism as it were, in its first glance, let us make a name for ourselves. But watch this. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. You see how God has to detach us from things that we trust in before we can fully trust him. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. You have to decide, all of us as human beings, are we wanting to make our name great Or are we going to let God make our name great? Man, with the building of this city and the Tower of Babel, was trying to make their name great. And God said to Abraham, if you'll trust me, I'll make your name great. Let me just say it this way. You can't try to make your name great and be a friend of God. There are are two things that we start to see that develops when we study this anatomy of a friend of God. First of all, you have to trust God, and, and Abraham was the one that we see. The second thing is your existence has to be about glorifying God and magnifying God. That's why it's worshipers of the true and living God who become the friends of God because you can't worship God and try to make your name great. Every time I say great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, I'm saying to my own flesh, I am not interested in my own name. I am interested in exalting the name of God in this atmosphere. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. So right away we see two very important things, and that is trust and exalting the name of God as opposed to exalting our own name. I remember um, many, many years ago, whenever I was just starting evangelizing, and 
and uh, my cousin, Brother Tom Bush, who now pastors in Fort Walton Beach, was, was also here. And I was working at a Christian radio station up in Cocoa Beach, and I was working here in this church with my father. And there was a church over in Tampa that had asked me to come over and to preach over there um, a series of weekends. And so I'd asked my father if it was okay. He said yes. The, the, the tricky part was that I had to be at this radio station at 4 o'clock Sunday morning or Monday morning. And so my cousin and I would go over and we would preach Sunday morning, Sunday night, and then we would drive back and, and get, you know, two hours sleep. But you know, when you're young and crazy, you can do all of this. And, uh, and, then, and then I would be at the, at the radio station at uh, five in the morning up in Cocoa. So we were doing this for a few weeks and I remember it was around the third week. I was young. I was like, I don't know, maybe 20, 21 years old. And I remember going over and, and maybe I can blame it on a lack of sleep. I doubt it was that. It's probably just flesh. But I remember going to this church, and they had a sign out front. And the marquee sign said, guest speaker evangelist David Myers. I was so happy to see my name on this sign. I got out there, and I had my cousin taking pictures of me with the sign and all of that. And uh, we went into the Sunday morning service, you know. And I remember I was getting ready to speak, and I was going through my notes, and I was praying and saying, Lord, help us today to have the mind of God. And the Lord just spoke to my heart and said, who's preaching today, you or me? I said, well, Lord, we can't do it without you. And he reminded me of that picture-taking thing I had done just a few minutes earlier out in front. Why are you, it just, I felt the Lord just kind of having this dialogue. Why are you so proud of seeing your name on that sign? I said, Lord, I'm so sorry. I'll go have an usher and take it down right now. I apologize. I've got to have your help. But it's human nature. We all have a desire to have significance in our life. In fact, every human being is looking for security and significance. It's just part of our DNA. But to be a friend of God, we've got to be like Abraham, and we have to find meaning or significance by trusting in God. Who are we? We are believers in a living God. That's who we are. Abraham is coming out of this background and God is trying to get this background out of him. This idolatry background. Then we look over in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8. Let me touch on this before we, we leave this, this comparison with uh, Babel and what they were building. Look at Hebrews chapter 11 verse 8. By faith Abraham... We have to go over to the New Testament now to see this. Hebrews 11, 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out. There's the third little indication of what it is to be a friend of God. Obedience. You can't be a friend of God without obedience. You have to obey the word of God and he went out not knowing whether he went by faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob the heirs with him of the same promise look at verse 10 I love this part for he looked for a city which had foundations whose builder and maker is God now contrast that with Genesis eleven four, 4, and they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Do you see the contrast there? They were trying to build a city and lay 
man-made foundations. Abraham said, I'm looking for a city whose foundation and builder is God, not man. <laughs> Woo, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to tell you something right now. It is a friend of God that says, Lord, I'm going to put you in the very foundation of my life. I'm going to start out with you, God. I'm not going to wait until I'm at a point of catastrophe. I'm going to say, Lord, I want you to build this life. I want you to be in the foundation of my thought process. I want you to be in the foundation of every decision that I make. I want you to be in the foundation. I want you to be at the very beginning of every day that I live and breathe air. I'm going to start out every morning, not with the news of this world, but with the good news of the gospel by ingesting into my system, into my mind, and into my spirit the promises of the word of God. And I'm going to say, God, I want you to build this day. I want you to build this life. Even Revelation describes two cities, Babylon and New Jerusalem. In fact, the entire Bible is a tale of two cities. And it's not a matter of what city you live in, it's a matter of what city you live for. The difference between the two is who is the builder? Who is the foundation? The Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God. And all of these things shall be added to you. So many times if you're like me, you, I can remember when my children were smaller and we would buy these toys and they would have instructions and I would always say, I don't need the instructions. I can figure out how to build this. And then you get, and it's all cattywampus and is anybody else like me? You go looking to see where the instructions are and you hope that it wasn't thrown out. <laughs> so many times in life we do that, right? We're like, okay, I got this. I can, I can live my own life. Well, I'm 18 now. I'm going to do this and that. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. You know, we all went through that at 18, 19, 20. And then when we get in trouble, we're just like, where's the instructions? Someone said Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth, B-I-B-L-E. But we go back, it, how much trouble would we save ourselves if we said, God, you be in the foundation. I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God. A friend of God starts first with a foundation that includes God. But Abraham didn't just say, I want someone, I'm looking for a city whose foundation is God. He said, but also the builder and the maker. In other words, I'm not going to just use him at the beginning. I want him to be a part of the entire process. My boys were talking to me the other day about what they, you know, different things and desires they have, what they want to be when they grow up. And so we got to just talking about, you know, different desires and dreams and things you want to accomplish and you, you start getting up to be you know, in your teenage years, you start thinking about, you know, what you're going to do or what you're going to be and interests that you have and so forth and so on. So we were talking about this. My one son told me he loves animals and he thought about being a veterinarian until he found out you have to go to school so long. So maybe that's not the right thing to do, you know. <laughs> and uh, so we were just laughing and talking about this and that. And, and, I, and I started telling him a little bit about uh, about my own story. And I said, you know, with me, I never really wanted to be in the ministry. I, I wanted to either be a pilot or a lawyer. And I was trying to decide whether to go to law school or to go to Emory-Riddle Aeronautical School up on a beach. And I was trying to figure all that out. And a guy came to preach at our church. Of course, our church was 
quite a bit smaller. We were down the east end of Palm Bay Road. And a guy told this story, this preacher from the west coast of Florida, he told this story about two sons that he had. One was a lawyer and one was a minister. And he, he tells this whole journey about the two paths that they've taken and how the one who's the preacher is the one that is going to have the, the greater responsibility. And so I felt, I was probably about 16 or 17 at the time, and so I felt a, a certain responsibility to say, Lord, I don't want to just plan my life without you. So if it's your will and you're wanting me to pursue ministry, then, you know, and then I felt like I had to be like Gideon and fleece the Lord, you know. So I said, I, I want you to work out this scholarship. At the time, they were trying to get a scholarship for me, but it wasn't going to work out because it was out of state. And I was going, wanting to go to a Bible school in Minnesota that was a Christian Bible school, seminary school for ministers, and it wasn't accredited, and it was out of state, and this scholarship had to do with the state of Florida. So went through this whole process, and they said, okay, we've denied you, but we need you to come into the office for a formal denial. Well, I'm like, you can just tell me no on the phone. I don't need to be humiliated any further. Another reason I didn't want to go through with this was because I had used this as a fleece. Lord, if this is your will for me to go into Bible school then, then, and pursue ministry, then let this scholarship work out. I thought I'd give God something really hard to work on. And uh, so they said, it's, it's no, but we want you to come in. So my parents said, well, we need to at least go in and finalize it. So I'm going down there, and we're driving down to this place where they're going to tell us no. And I'm thinking, God, I trusted in you. You know, you have all those different feelings. So I was telling my boys this story, and they said, so what happened? I said, well, I got down there and we thought it was going to be a no and instead it was a yes. And they said, not only are we going to pay for one year of Bible school, we're going to pay for three years. We're going to pay for you to graduate. Not only are we going to pay for your books and your tuition, but we're going to pay for your, your room and your board. Everything for three years is going to be paid for. And I'm sitting there going, uh-oh. If you put a, ple a fleece out there before the Lord, he answers it. You're on the hook then. I'm like, okay, God. So when I got to Bible school, the very first thing they want to do when you checked in, and Brother Norris, the president of the Bible school, he wanted to know right away what jobs you were working on. You're going to have a job. So he meets with all the students individually. And I walked in there. They called him the bear. He was just a great guy. He was even my dad's Bible school teacher back in the 50s. Of course, he was quite older by then, but he was still an awesome guy, Brother S.G. Norris. And I, went, I sat in his office and he said, uh, his voice was all ruined by this time in his life from preaching all those years. Uh, uh, Brother Myers, uh, what, what job are you going to have here in St. Paul, Minnesota? I said, Brother Nars, here I am, 17 years old, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And I'm sitting there, I said, Brother Nars, you're going to be so proud of me. I'm going to be able to pay my bill every semester and I'm not going to have to have a job or work because I have a full scholarship. God has worked out a miracle. And I tell him this whole story about how this miracle, he's sitting there just looking at me like that, you know. And uh, I said, so as it, as it turns out, I'm not going to have to work the whole time I'm here. He said, uh, Myers, you go get a job today. <laughs> he, he had it. He had enough wisdom to know it wasn't an issue about me paying my bill. It was an issue about keeping a 17-year-old out of trouble. So I did. I got a great job working for 3M, and they were great to me for three years. It was an, it was an amazing journey. So I was telling the boys this, and I said, here's the deal. Here's how good God is. I, I went from that, and we were doing a drama the first year, and, and I was knowing, I was preaching, and we were just doing the drama and practicing, but 
the anointing of God came in there and I started getting annoyed and preached to all my classmates who were all making fun of me in the drama because they were all the people that were making fun of Noah and the story. And I said, somehow the Lord came down in this deal and we ended up having a two-hour prayer meeting and it was the first time I felt the anointing of God. So after I got out of Bible school, I went to evangelize. Anyways, I'm telling them this whole story. But I said, here's how good God is. Because you put the Lord first, I was able to go back and get my law degree. I was able to go back and get my pilot's license. God will give you the desires of your heart. All he wants to know is, will you put him first? If you put God first, he blesses everything else that flows down from that. God's not interested in taking stuff out of your life. He's interested in giving you life and life more abundantly. But he wants to know, can he trust you? I've only got a couple of minutes, but there's a great story in the book of Genesis chapter 19 about Lot and his family, you know, as they had to leave Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a wicked city. He tells them to leave and don't stop till you get to the mountain. Don't look back. But the Bible tells us that they go to this city named Zor, which is a city that's close by. And the Bible says it's well watered. It's beautiful. It's palm trees. It's like Florida. It's paradise. And it's in Zor that Lot's wife turns around and looks back. And she turns into a pillar of salt. Why is it that Lot lost his wife in the city of Zor? There's many people today, ladies and gentlemen, who are serving God and living in Zor. They look over at Sodom and Gomorrah and they see the wickedness that's out in this world and they say, thank God I'm not over there. But Zor gives people a false sense of security. It was the Lord who said, don't stop until you get to the mountain. Don't stop until you have committed everything unto me. But we stop in Zor and we say, this is comfortable. We don't know if we want to go to a mountain. In fact, even Lot said, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I'm not a mountain goer. I'm a city slicker. I can't make it up there. People live in caves and it's going to be too much of a contrast. It's too much of a change in my life. But ladies and gentlemen, while the wicked die in Sodom and Gomorrah, the righteous die in Zor. Because though they're not in Sodom, they can see Sodom from there. It's not enough, ladies and gentlemen, to just move from a wicked city to a neutral city. You can't stop until you get to a city that is built on the words of God. And the words of God to Lot were get to the mountain. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe it's the desire of every single human being in this place today to say, I want to be a friend of God. I'm going to tell you what, you can be a friend of God, but you've got to trust His Word. You've got to be a worshiper of God. You've got to obey His Word, and you can't stop until you say, God, I have put everything under the blood. You are first and foremost in my life. You be the builder of this life. You be in the foundation of this life the foundation of my family and the foundation of my marriage. Let everything that I do, let it start with the Word of God. Would you stand to your feet this morning? Oh, I believe the Lord right now wants to put His arms around each and every one of us. He wants to be in relationship and in fellowship. Would you just lift your hands and your voices right now? Lord, I thank You for Your Word that gives us a roadmap where we can be in fellowship with You where we can be a friend of yours, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us this pattern. You have given us your servant Abraham, Lord, that we can look back and we can see that you did indeed call him your friend. 
because he trusted in you, Lord. I pray your anointing and your blessing upon every single person here today. Allow our hearts and minds to be open to you and to trust you in Jesus' name. Everybody said in Jesus' name. Amen. Remain standing as we worship the Lord today.